Here's where we've been. We've been in Proverbs. We ran up through Proverbs 9, and we covered the moral issues that are the subject of the first nine chapters of Proverbs. Before that, we were in the Kings. And we were in the Kings for a good long time. And I had pretty much determined here that when we started up here this particular stretch before the summer, I was going to go into the New Testament. And, um, and, and as I was pondering that, and then I was, looking at, um, I was looking at another subject, and then I was looking at something else. And the days were going by, and it was getting closer and closer to tonight. And um, I, I'm studying and reading in about four different areas. And the thing I didn't want to do, quite frankly, was stay in the Old Testament. I wanted to get into the New Testament because we've been in the Old Testament so long. But we're going to stay in the Old Testament for eight more weeks. <laughs> and then uh, it's not that the New Testament isn't being taught in this church because it is. But there seems to be um, kind of a convergence of, of, of issues that, uh, that, that we are dealing with that I find are being uh, uniquely addressed, believe it or not, in the book of Judges. What I want to do, we've got eight weeks in this stretch. And what I want to do over the next eight weeks is give you eight snapshots out of the book of Judges. The, the book of Judges is a um, depressing book. Now... How else can I motivate you to come? Uh, that, that's the only thing I can tell you. Uh, it, uh, you say, well, why is it a depressing book? It's a depressing book because it chronicles uh, a, a period of about 300 or so years in the history of Israel. It, it, it uh, gives an account of the spiritual and moral uh, free fall and downfall of the nation. Uh, yet, the reason that is particularly applicable to us is that we find ourselves in a nation, much like Israel in the Old Testament, that has been given much truth. Uh, Israel had the law. Israel had the truth of the Lord. Uh, we've been given the truth of the Lord. The, the most influential book in the minds of the founding fathers of this nation uh, was not the Koran, it was the Bible. Um, uh, the, we, we, you remember uh, the pilgrims. Uh, the pilgrims came over here because they felt that God had led them. There used to be a concept. Uh, they used to teach a course in school called history. And... Um, um, not revisionist history, but history. And when you study the history of the United States of America, and this is where we live, this is the nation uh, to which we've been born, or some of you have come from other countries. And, and uh, over the years, quite frankly, all of us, somebody in our family came from another country. And they came here for a reason. And why did they come here? Well, the pilgrims came because they had a religious issue in England. And they were persecuted, and they could not practice their faith. Before the pilgrims came here, they were in Holland for eight years. And they went through all kinds of trials and tribulations and heartaches and disappointments, and they, they finally made their way here. 
and then providentially how they survived and how some, uh, an Indian showed up. One guy showed up and showed the, a guy who spoke perfect English. You think I'm kidding. I'm not kidding. Because you see, um, he had wound up going to England and being educated in England. And he had been taken away from his people. And when he came back, here were these pilgrims just about ready to go under, and he was the one that showed them how to plant corn. And, you know, you, you put corn in there and you dig a hole and you put a fish in there and it'll fertilize it. And just the providence of God. And there was something actually called manifest destiny. Uh, following the pilgrims were the Puritans. Why did the Puritans come over? Because of religious persecution. They felt that God had led them here. And you read the writings of these early guys, this was a spiritual issue for them. And what they were looking to do was they were looking to establish a country based on biblical principles. That's why if you go to Washington, D.C., you see the word of God everywhere. If you've, if you've uh, heard David Barton, or if you've seen any of his videos, or if you've read his material, uh, it is absolutely staggering the influence that the Bible had on the founding of this nation. And as a result, what does the scripture say? How blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. And people say, oh, no, 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 you're overplaying this Christian influence. No, we're really not. We're really not overplaying it. You go to Washington, D.C., you see Scripture everywhere. You see Scripture. Uh, if you walk into the Capitol Rotunda, uh, when, when uh, President Reagan's body uh, was lying in state, and you'd get the glimpses of the people passing by, if you've never been in the Capitol Rotunda, uh, you could see they, they would take different shots, and you could see these massive paintings on the wall of the rotunda. And I kept looking for the one that to me is the most striking, which is the painting that must be, I, I'm, I'm estimating, I, I want to say it's got to be 25 feet high and, and maybe 50 or 60 feet in length. Massive paintings. This one is of the pilgrims holding up the word of God over their heads which showed the fact that they were under the authority of the Word of God. Just everywhere you go in D.C., you see Scripture. You go to the Supreme Court. They've got the Ten Commandments chiseled in marble at the Supreme Court. That's got to drive those guys nuts. <laughs> so many of them. It just has to be a real irritant to them. What an inconvenience. Um, yeah, our money still says, uh, in God we trust. And you, you see, the fact of the matter is, when, when you, in world history, when you look at the United States, we're very unique in terms of how we came to be. And whenever you get a nation, a nation has to have laws. Well, where do the laws come from? The laws have to come from somewhere. Well, if... Uh, if you know anything about law, you know about Blackstone's commentaries. And it used to be you didn't go to law school because they didn't have law schools. So if you wanted to become an attorney, you would read Blackstone's commentaries. And the founders were well aware of these principles. Blackstone, you see, he would give the law, and then he would give the scriptural basis for the law. Um, anyway. Very unique how this country was set up.
We have had a biblical foundation. Every nation has some kind of foundation. Israel in the Old Testament had a biblical foundation. They were the chosen people. God called them out. God then gave the law to Moses. He brought it down. Historically, we see that um, uh, the law which God gave to Moses became the basis of what we call the Judeo-Christian ethic. Uh, it's, it's a biblical print. In, in other words, every nation is going to believe certain things. And, and we live in a day and age where multiculturalism is very, very important. Uh, what multiculturalism means is that all cultures, and I'm, and I'm speaking here uh, in terms of what you'll hear at a university level, Multiculturalism basically teaches that all cultures are equal. All cultures aren't equal. Some cultures are better than others. The best cultures are Christian cultures because people are set free in Christian cultures. A number of years ago, Rajiv Gandhi was the, the prime minister of India, and he was assassinated. I saw... Uh, clips of his memorial service on, uh, on the news and they had a traditional Hindu ceremony uh, there was a wooden raft that had been put together his body was on top of it it was covered with dry kindling and then flowers were spread across this small raft um, and then after the appropriate words were said they then put a torch to it, and he was cremated. Now, it's been that way for thousands of years in India. That's their culture, with one exception. Before Christianity came to India, and uh, church history and church tradition tells us that uh, um, Thomas, Chuck read the account of the scripture, a lot of scripture on Sunday, it was great. Remember Thomas? Thomas said, he heard about the Lord, what had happened, that he was alive, and he, he, he just didn't buy it. Unless I, unless I touch, unless I feel. Well, guess what? He got to touch, and he got to feel. And it was Thomas who went to India and spread the gospel. Uh, interestingly enough, the way Rajiv Gandhi, in his culture, the way that uh, they had his memorial service, uh, that's the way it's been done in Israel, in, in India for thousands of years, with one exception before Christianity came to India. A man would die, they would make a wooden raft on the Ganges River, put his body on top, cover it with kindling flowers, say the appropriate words. But before they torch it, they would take his living wife and put her on it. That's, that's what you get in that culture. That's what you get in Hinduism. Christianity is superior to that. You see, all cultures are not the same. Yet I hear people saying this. I hear women saying that. Well, if you really believe that, why don't you go to Afghanistan and live under the Taliban? Well, they don't want to do that because they know how the Taliban treats women. They deride them, their property. Uh, your husband can kill you if he wants. Uh, you, you can be raped uh, under Saddam. They had rape rooms. You, you had no guarantee your wife would not be taken. Your daughters would not be taken. 
Now, now why, is it, why, why is this the case? Because, see, all these nations have, nation have foundations, and out of their foundation come their laws, and based on their law, it depends on the quality of a person's life. All cultures are not equal. Wherever Christianity has gone, the status of women has gone up. Wherever Christianity has gone, good things have happened in people's lives. Uh, because, you see, we, we, we can't live in a vacuum. We, we, we have to live according to some kind of value, some kind of principles. So we as a country are unique. Uh, Israel had a biblical foundation. To a large degree, we had a biblical foundation. There was no question that in the beginning years of our nation, we were a nation whose God was the Lord. We weren't perfect, but we knew Christianity ran through the fiber and the fabric of this nation. Well, here's what happens to nations, and here's what happened to Israel. We've all heard of the rise and fall of nations. It happens. It's a historical fact. Arnold Toynbee uh, did his great study on civilizations. And were there not 24 or 26 great civilizations? Sure there were. And what happened to them? They're all gone. In Judges, we read about a chapter in the life of the nation of Israel. And why don't you take your Bible and turn with me to Judges chapter 2. Because we'll, we'll kind of get a... We're not going to cover every verse in Judges. I want to take eight snapshots of Judges. And I think what we're going to find is that what we're going to see in Judges is remarkably applicable to where we are in our nation. We want to serve the Lord. We want to follow the Lord. We want to reach people with the gospel. We want people's lives to be set free. We want to see people's marriages healed. We want to see relationships put together. Uh, we want to see less divorce, and we want to see longer marriages. We want to see parent-child relationships healed. Uh, that's what God wants to see happen. So, you see, there's a lot to be learned for those of us who live in America in the 21st century. There's a whole lot for us to learn from, from the book of Judges. In Joshua chapter, in Joshua, that's, that's where I've turned, is Joshua. But I'm one book, one book early. In, in Judges chapter 2, interestingly enough, we are introduced to Joshua in Judges chapter 2. Uh, note verse 6. <clears throat> and here now we're going to get a chronology, okay? Really what we're picking up in, in Judges 2, it parallel and kind of flaps over and connects to the previous book, which is Joshua. You'll notice this. When Joshua had dismissed the people, the sons of Israel, went each to his, his inheritance to possess the land. Twelve tribes, they broke up the promised land. Remember, all the ites were in the land. Canaanites, Perizzites, Amorites, all those ites were in there. Highly advanced civilizations, uh, had the, the latest technology of the day, which was iron chariots. They were highly educated, but they were godless, they were barbaric, they were shot through with venereal disease. And in the book of Joshua, they were to take their land and they were gonna, God was going to give it to them little by little as they fought these different ites. And then they would have the land distributed to them by the tribe that they were in. So in Joshua 6, 
Joshua dismisses them and says, hey, go take your land and go live on it and go start building your families. Verse 7, the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua, who had seen all the great work of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. How many of you guys ever heard W.A. Criswell preach? Quite a few. Great preacher. Well, he's with the Lord now. Uh, you, you, you can tell your friend, I heard Criswell, I, I heard him preach once. And I'd always wanted to hear him preach. I didn't get to hear him preach until about 1986. And I'll tell you, I went down to First Baptist. I was down at the seminary, came in from California, and I flew in early just so I could go hear him preach. And, and I caught him in the summer, and he had his white suit on. And I'll tell you, he was on that day. And he was about 143 years old right then. But he was on. I mean, the guy was just incredible. Well, you know, I got to hear him. He's with the Lord now. Some of you guys guys have been impacted by Dr. Criswell to a great degree. Well, he's gone. Now you're around. You see, that's what happened. Joshua was gone. But, But then those who served with him were around. But then look what happens. The days of the elders who survived Joshua had seen all the great work of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. Verse 9 says they buried him. Now catch verse 10. All that generation also were gathered to their fathers. They all died. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. Now, you're going to see a deterioration beginning in verse 11 that happened to Israel. And it goes all the way down to verse 23. Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. They had not completely destroyed the people, the ites. They hadn't completely driven them out. And what happened was those ites began to influence the people of Israel and turn their hearts to God. Verse 12, they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them and bowed themselves down to them. Thus they provoked the Lord to anger. Look at verse 16. Now, here we go with the judges. Then the Lord raised up judges who delivered them from the hands of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to the judges. The judges um, were those that God raised up who were deliverers. Deliverers. There wasn't a leader anymore like Moses or Joshua. This was going to be a period where God would raise up they would be attacked, the people would be in trouble. This, and what happens throughout the book of Judges about they'll be in big trouble, they'll call out to God, they'll finally call out to God because they're in trouble. God will raise up a judge to deliver, and then there's peace in the land for about 40 years, sometimes 80 years, and then they go through the cycle again. But every time they go back to the false gods, and every time they go a little bit deeper in the sin. And, and the moral fabric that they inherited from previous generations, it begins to erode and it begins to fray. Uh, These people were living off the spiritual capital of the past. To a great degree, the blessings that we've enjoyed in America were living off the spiritual capital of of previous generations. Have you ever met somebody, and and they seem to be doing well, and uh, some guy and his life's going pretty well, and you meet his wife, and, and they seem to have a good marriage, and their kids seem to be doing pretty well, and pretty normal, and and 
favor is on their life and they kind of, they, they just kind of got it together, but they have no interest in the things of God. Have you ever met anybody like that? I remember Ray Stedman talking about a situation like that. And Ray said, whenever you meet somebody like that, and they're, they're decent people, and they're good people, and they live by certain values, and they have strong marriages, and they love their kids and all, he said, it, it, but, but what's puzzling is they don't know Christ. They have no interest in Christ. He says, go back a few generations. You'll find Christ in that family. You'll find a Christian heritage. Those people are living off the capital. They're following biblical principles by they live, and they don't even know it because they've been given a biblical inheritance. Although they deny the one, they're still living by his principles. That's what we're doing as a nation. That's what Israel was doing for a while. God raises up judges, but then there's a downward spiral. Verse 17, yet they did not listen to the judges. They played the harlot after other gods and bowed themselves down to them. They turned aside quickly from the way in which their fathers had walked. Did you catch that? The way that their fathers had walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord, they did not do as their fathers. When the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved by pity, by their groaning, because of those who pressed and afflicted them. But it came about when the judge died that they would turn back and act more corruptly than their fathers. You see the downward spiral? In following other gods to serve them and bow down to them, and they did not abandon their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he said, Because this nation has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers, and has not listened to my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will keep the way of the Lord to walk in it as their fathers did or not. So the Lord allowed those nations to remain, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Ron Allen says this about this time of the judges. He says, Judges 2 establishes the cyclical pattern of sin, slavery, and salvation that would dominate the time of the judges. However, the book makes clear that the cycle had a downward spiral. Each new outbreak of disobedience and idolatry took Israel further away from God and deeper into sin and misery. By the end of the book, it is clear that Israel had violated its covenant with God in almost every imaginable way. By the end of the book. So what's in the end of the book? Well, let's turn to the end of the book. We'll get a glimpse of just how far the spiral took them down. The end of the book is Judges 21, verse 25, which simply says this, and closes out this chapter on a nation that had been given so much by God and blessed by God. It says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. I find that amazingly relevant to where we are right now. Don't you? There's a concept called, uh, and you've all heard the term, postmodernism. We are living in a postmodern culture. What does that mean? Well, at its core, postmodernism means that there is no absolute truth. That's what postmodernism means, and those who teach it teach that concept absolutely. 
If there's anything that's absolutely true, it is that there's no absolute truth. Which so shows you the lunacy of that position. <clears throat> Some of you were around in the 60s. Some of you were in college in the 60s. And as David Crosby said of Crosby, Stills, and Nash, if you were in the 60s and say you remember it, you're lying. <laughs> now, that was true of him because he was in a constant drug haze since about 63. And you see the futility of his life. Uh, something happened in the 60s in this nation. And, and we all remember it. There was an earthquake in this nation. A moral earthquake, a spiritual earthquake. If you read Alan Bloom's book, The Closing of the American Mind, uh, Alan Bloom, not a Christian, but a professor at University of Chicago, uh, a, a brilliant man, uh, he wrote this book about the university system in America and how it changed in the 60s. And uh, he was always honored by the academic intelligentsia until he wrote that book, and they despised him until the day he died. But he talked about the fact that up until uh, basically the 66, 67, when you look at the history of America, uh, he said uh, every home had a Bible. Even if people didn't have a personal relationship with Christ, they had a Bible. And that Bible represented the moral code of that family. That family believed, even if they weren't Christians, even if they didn't attend church, they had a Bible in that home. True, 99% of the people in America. Uh, that Bible represented uh, uh, their values. It represented what they believed. So most Americans, by far, a huge majority, believed in the Ten Commandments. They believed in the Golden Rule. Uh, the Bible was the basis. The Bible was the foundation. They believed in something called moral absolutes. They believed God gave the Ten Commandments. And, and, and people, that was the basis for our law. Every, you know, people will talk about different laws are being discussed, and, oh, you're just trying to legislate morality. Every law is legislating morality. The question is, whose morality is going to be legislated? In America, we legislated, generally speaking, and specifically, God's law. And that's why people wanted to come here, because we had the blight of slavery, that was, a, that was a huge thing, and, 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 and slavery was taught and, and justified from the Scriptures. They didn't teach what the Bible says about slavery. In, in, in Scripture, you could, you, they had slavery, but you'd only be a slave for seven years. It was a way of getting out of debt. But if you, this, you got, this guy you were working for, if he was a good guy and he had health care and he had 401Ks, you could become an indentured servant. You could become a bond servant. It wasn't what we had in Mississippi. That was a blight on American culture. Generally speaking, our laws were based on the word of God. We weren't perfect. Uh, people believed in moral absolutes. In the 60s, moral relativism came in. What is moral relativism? Moral relativism says there is no absolute creator, therefore there is no absolute truth, therefore you can do anything you want. Every man does what's right in his own eyes. So university students all over America in the 60s bought that hook, line, and sinker. They bought that new philosophy. So the question is, where are those university students of the 60s? Where are they now? They're everywhere. They're everywhere. They are the new ites. They're the ites. Um, they're anti-God. They're anti-truth. You say, oh, you're getting political here. I'm not talking politics. I'm just standing back and looking at our nation. I'm looking at the spiritual condition of our culture. First Chronicles 12.32 said, says that the men of Issachar, 
one of the tribes of Israel. The men of Issachar understood the times and knew what Israel should do. You know what we need to do, guys? We need to become men of Issachar. Because, you see, the men of Issachar, they understood their times. I need to understand my times. Because I'm on the earth right now, just as they were on the earth in their time. God has given me a work to do. He's given you a work to do. Well, in order to do that, I have to understand the times. See, that's discernment. We need God's discernment right now. And secondly, we need God's vision. They understood the times and knew what Israel should do. See, these are confusing times. You know what? God does not want us to be confused. There is absolute truth. There is clarity. There is a God. Now, we get confused about life. Well, what do I do? Well, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men liberally without reproach. He will give you discernment. He will give you wisdom. He'll give you vision. He will lead you. He will navigate you. Even in a culture like ours, it's falling apart, which is so similar to judges, every man did what was right in his own eyes. That's where we are as a culture right now. Any of this making sense? I got about three hours worth of stuff here. <laughs> these are the these are the kind of the, some of the quotes I want to do tonight. No way I'm going to make it. Um, so let me cut and paste here. Let me see if I can. Uh, last night. Um, I'm eating a bowl of Wheaties, and Mary's going through the mail. And she's tossing and putting the bills here and tossing. And all of a sudden, she said, oh, my gosh. And I said, what, what do you got there? And she hands me this. I wish you guys could all see this. Uh, this is a picture of a Doberman Pinscher that is emaciated. What, what, uh, quite frankly, when I saw this, it reminded me of some of the pictures that you see coming from Auschwitz. This, this poor dog is abused beyond belief. Uh, this is from the SPCA, the American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. Here's this gripping picture of this dog that has been just abused beyond belief. His belly was empty, so empty it hurt. The back door would open and shut. An astro would hope for food. But his abuser never brought any. In fact, he didn't even look at Astro as he came and went. Astro drank out of a puddle near the stake he was chained to. The dirty water kept him alive, but then the puddle dried up. Astro had only a few days to live. Then the letter says, Dear friend, you wouldn't treat a dog that way. And I thought, No, but we'd sure treat a woman that way. Goes on, Astro's abuser was charged with animal cruelty. When asked why he had allowed Astro to go without food and water, he admitted that he was deliberately starving the dog to death. And they charged the guy and brought him up before a judge. They should have brought him up before Judge Greer in Florida. By the way, you know Judge Greer is an evangelical Christian in a Bible-believing church. Did you know that? Oh, yeah. Absolute. He's a good old Southern Baptist boy. I'll get to that in a minute. 
catch this, back page. As you read this, and it's a four-page you know, letter to donate. Hey, listen. And, and listen, the Bible talks about taking care of your animals. You read the Old Testament law. You're supposed to do that. You know? I, I got two cows out there in my pasture, and I make sure they're well-fed. I, I just do. And, and I, if I'm going out of town, I check their hay and how much they got out there before I leave. And I got two retrievers, and I spent 45 bucks on food the other night for those retrievers. I got them good food. I got them big. Those dogs eat better than I did in college. <laughs> they just do. So, uh, yeah, you, you know, you take care of your animals. The reality is this. As you read this letter, somewhere, perhaps not far from you, someone is inflicting pain on an innocent and helpless animal. And that animal may well die a slow and agonizing death. You know what I want to know? I want to know where these people are on the Terry Schiavo issue. That's where I want to know. I know where God is. I know where his word is. Just so ironic, isn't it? And of course, yeah, and of course we take, yeah, we're all, we're against this. This is ungodly. What's happened to us? Well, you want to find out what's happened to us you go to the scriptures. You go to the great physician who gives a spiritual diagnosis. The word of God will tell us our condition. It'll tell us what the issues are and how you deal with the issues. We've all grieved as we have seen these events taking place. I don't know how the Schindler family continues to function, but they are. The other night, Terry's father, Robert Schindler, said this. He said, what I think you're seeing now is a display where the judicial system is flexing their muscles. They're showing who's in command of this country, and we're not in command. The public is not, and the people you elect to Congress are not. Now, that's really a sobering concept. The judges are in control. And woe to this country with those people in power. We've lost control. Now, I'll tell you what's really interesting. And I got all this stuff in my head. So I, I wish I had a brought. I wish, I, I, I'm just, it's just popping in my head. One of the things David Barton does is that he, he does this amazing job of showing the biblical influence in the minds of the founding fathers when they put together the documents. The whole concept of the separation of powers came out of the book of Isaiah, and I can't pull up the reference, but I'll give it to you next week. It came from the word of God. There was a separation of powers. They based that on what God said in his word because they knew the condition of men's heart. If you leave it to one man to, one man to, 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 to lead and have absolute authority, well, absolute power corrupts what? Absolutely, Acton said. Where did he get that? He got that from the scripture. Jeremiah says, the heart is desperately sick and wicked. Who can know it? That's why we have accountability. We all need accountability. We all answer to somebody. But we've got a group of men who answer to no one. That is an unbiblical concept. God ordains government. Romans 12 tells us that. Flip over there real quick, if you would. Actually, Romans 13. Where does government come from? Our father, our founding fathers knew. Romans 13. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. Now, that's really hard when you've got a tyrant. 
as they had in the New Testament under Nero. But you see, our founders and the Puritans and the pilgrims, they wanted to have a balance. They wanted to have a biblical government. They wanted to escape the tyranny that they experienced in England. There's no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Once again, the founders, they knew the hearts of men. They looked at the scripture, and they said, we've got to have a balance of power. So they set up three branches, as you know. That's as far as I'm going to go in Romans 13, but you get the concept. These men knew God established government. They had seen what happened when God was ignored. Samuel Rutherford wrote a book that was, that was earth-shaking. He wrote a book called Lex Rex. And in his day and time in England, that, that shook up the whole, the whole nation. Because Lex Rex means law is king. Up until that time that Le Rutherford wrote that book, it wasn't Lex Rex, it was Rex Lex, which means the king is law. You see, it used to be the king made law. Whatever the king wanted to do was law. And Samuel Rutherford wrote this book, and he said, wait a minute, that's not right. The king isn't law, the king should be under the law. And you know what he based it on? He said, Jesus is the king of kings. And when Jesus came to this earth, he didn't come with power. He came submitting to the law of God. When Jesus went to the cross... It was a substitutionary atonement. It was a propitiation. It was a satisfaction for what? For God's justice. Jesus fulfilled the law in every point. See, he could have come with a sword. He didn't. He came and fulfilled the law. And Rutherford said, if the king of kings came and fulfilled the law and submitted to the law, then earthly kings should follow the law. So the king isn't law. The law is over the king. That became the basis that became the basis for the American Revolution. And a guy named John Locke, who influenced the founders, had been influenced by Rutherford. Anyway, there'll be a quiz on this on Thursday. <laughs> See, there's a reason we had what we had in this nation. And when you trace it back, it goes back to this book that we're studying tonight. It goes back to the scriptures. How many of you guys are familiar with Francis Schaeffer? Good. If you're not, let me tell you about Francis Schaeffer. Probably the most influential uh, Christian of the last 50 years. Was a pastor, um, Presbyterian pastor, for many years after World War, very successful Presbyterian pastor in St. Louis. After World War II, uh, the denomination asked him to go over, and he was a conservative Presbyterian, they asked him to go over to uh, Europe and see the condition of the churches, uh, to see what needs there were after World War II, spiritual needs, physical needs of orphans. He went, was there several months, came back, gave his report, and basically said uh, there's tremendous need over there, as we imagined. There's only physical needs, but there are um, spiritual needs in the churches because neo-orthodoxy is influencing the evangelical churches and pastors are departing from the word of God. And this has to be addressed. We need to send someone over there to address this and minister to children. They said, you're the guy. Schaefer left, left a, a very large church, very significant ministry in the eyes of man and, and of God, and went over there. And he wasn't there too long before the reports that he was sending back were not appreciated. And at a certain point, all financial support was cut off. They were barely, they were living hand to mouth. Little, tiny, cramped quarters. His son got polio. His daughter got rheumatic fever. 
Things were falling apart. It became a crisis. He couldn't understand why God had sent him over there. And things, everything was going against him. And he began to wonder and have some questions, and even in his own mind, why he was a Christian. And, and God just put a hold on his life. And he couldn't make any progress. And, and basically, he was stuck. So what he would do in the afternoons, he would walk in the Alps, and he began to rethink his entire Christianity, whether or not, indeed, it was true. And he matched it up against neo-orthodoxy and existentialism, and he thought it through. Do I really believe this stuff? Nobody knew about him. It was obscure. He had no ministry, nothing, zippo. They moved into another little place, and they were being threatened. They were going to have to leave Switzerland. They were going to be thrown out of the country. Remarkable set of events because there's a lot of freedom in Switzerland. But somehow a, a bureaucrat was on their case and was going to make them leave. Tremendous pressure. They moved into another little facility. Not, not, not real great. His daughter was off at school uh, in another city. And she called and said, there are three girls. Could I bring them home? And they hardly had room for the family. And they almost said no. And, and they said, okay, bring them. We'll make room. Well, these three girls were from different countries. Their father was, were diplomats internationally going to the school. And that weekend, they began to ask questions about God and about existentialism and these philosophies. And Francis Schaeffer, who had just spent two years walking the Alps, rethinking, was able to answer their questions. And one of the girls, he led to Christ that weekend. And they went back to school, and they called the next week and said, Dad, can we bring some more girls? They heard about what you were saying. And they had like six girls. And then the, week, the next week, they had like 12 girls. And that became a ministry called Debris. The Brie Fellowship, which if you read the Schaefer's biography, they never imagined. But uh, I first heard about Schaefer in 1967. I picked a guy up at the San Francisco airport. I was a senior in high school. And he'd been on a mission trip. And he stopped at this place called the Brie. And I remember he was in the back seat. It was raining. We're driving down Bayshore Freeway to San Carlos. And he says, I met this guy. His name is Francis Schaefer. He has knickers. He has long hair. He has this little chalet in the alps and they call him the apostle to the intellectuals this is francis schaefer world magazine has him on the cover celebrating 50 years of the ministry of Labrie. this guy was a world-class biblical thinker the last book that schaefer wrote i gotta watch my time i got lube back there now with time cards i really do and he's got an air horn if I go over. <laughs> the last book that Francis Schaeffer wrote, Francis Schaeffer understood theology. He understood history. He, he, he understood philosophy. And, and literally hundreds of people, thousands of people, they're having a big Labrie reunion this summer. And it, it's amazing how many politicians. You remember a woman in Florida Name, was, it, was her name Catherine Harris, who stood up? And do you know that when she was a young girl out of college, Catherine Harris went to Switzerland and studied under Francis Schaeffer at a place called Labrie and found out the importance of law and that it's established by God? It's God-ordained. She's one of the most hated women in America. She's a Christian. She studied under this guy. That's why she wasn't wavering. Schaefer's quite a guy. Last book he wrote was called A Christian Manifesto before he died of cancer. Uh, he talks about what God has done in America, the uniqueness, and then he traces it back to the scriptures. 
he quotes William Penn. You guys remember William Penn? He founded the state of Idaho. You remember him? I went to public school. <laughs> William Penn said this. He said, if we are not governed by God, we will be ruled by tyrants. Man, I wish I could give you this whole book, but, but I can't. Uh, you know what Schaefer said in this book? Uh, Schaefer, what we've seen this week happening with Terry Schiavo, he said it would happen in this book. Because Schaefer understood the flow of history, and he understood that ideas have consequences. And, and he talks about the courts in here. This book was written in 81. I remember reading this book. I got it in Atlanta. We were visiting Mary's parents. I went over and borrowed her dad's office, and I was doing some work, and I pulled this book out, and I started reading. I couldn't quit, and I read the whole thing in one sitting. I had chills go down my spine because I knew this guy was right. And he said, you've got to understand, when, when judges make law, as in Roe versus Wade, and when they say life is cheap and you can take life, and he said the next step is going to be euthanasia and it's going to be mercy killing. I remember thinking, that can't be true, but in my heart I knew it was coming. He predicted what we're seeing this week. Schaefer said he believed that America would ultimately end up in a dictatorship. That's crazy. I mean, we're the land of the free, the home of the brave. You know what Schaefer said? Just looking at the scriptures and the flow of history and how nations deteriorate, Schaefer said, it's my opinion from the scriptures that we will wind up in a dictatorship. I don't know if it'll be from the left or from the right. But cathartic events will begin to happen. And what will happen, people will give up their liberties and they'll give up their freedoms if they can be promised two things. Number one, if they can be promised affluence. They'll give up their freedoms. Secondly, if they can be promised personal peace. Don't bother me. Let me do what I want to do. Let me do what's right in my own eyes. He believed that if people could be guaranteed personal peace and affluence, they would give up liberty. He goes on and he says that he believed ultimately that this tyranny, that this elite ruling class would be the courts. That's what he believed in 81. And he tracked the Supreme Court all the way back to Oliver Wendell Holmes. You take it up to Warren. You take it. He just tracked. He predicted it. See, Schaefer was a guy. He was a man of Issachar who understood the times, and he knew what Israel should do. Fifteen. Thank you, Lou. I have 15 minutes. If you want to leave earlier, that's fine. No sweat. Uh, I tell you guys, the evangelical church is screwed up. Um, we have some friends who visited a church down in Houston. And interestingly enough, this is a church um, that has invited me to come down and do a conference. And it's not set yet, but uh, for their Easter deal this last weekend, um, 
See, when you don't teach the word of God, you always got to do something else. And you got to keep coming up with stuff to pull people in. They actually built a three-story house and, uh, and burned it down. My friends were there. They saw this. They had a car, a real nice car that blew up, and they did something else. And I'm, I, I, didn't, I didn't get the point, but it was really um, fascinating and entertaining. And they had a lot of people there, over 20,000 people. Um, now, that's not worth snot, to be honest with you. So you get 20,000 people. Who gives a rip? If you don't tell them the truth of the scriptures and the truth about Jesus Christ and his resurrection, and I'm sure those guys down there believe in the resurrection. So why don't they just teach it? Why don't they just proclaim it? Well, you know, if we, if we do that, you know, well, people, that's kind of boring. They're not going to come. How do you know that? People, people want to hear from God. People want to know what God says. You see? You don't need gimmicks. You don't need to, you know, explode cars and put tanks on stage and do all this nonsense. Just preach the Bible. We don't believe the Bible. Evangelicals generally. Uh, by the way, do you know that 59% of evangelicals believe what's happening to Terry Schiavo is all right? According to Time Magazine? Now, you've got to have your doubts about Time Magazine and how they really answer. Put, but, you know, that could be skewered. But, but here's what I'm saying. I wasn't surprised when I read that. Because you've got a lot of evangelical Christians who don't know biblical truth and don't live off biblical truth because they haven't been taught biblical truth because we think they won't come if we teach biblical truth. Now, we know that's not true because we're here. But see, it's, a lot, it's, you know, it's just a lot more exciting. It's a lot easier. Instead of digging into this and teaching it and maybe having people not like it, it's a lot easier to get a car on stage and blow it up, whatever the heck that's about. You see. This isn't Hollywood. This is the Word of God. And see, there are consequences. When you have churches like that, you know what's going to happen? You're going to produce Christians like this judge in Florida. Joseph Farah, in his column this week, he says, I am convinced God uses trials like the Terry Schiavo case to test men. Um, Circuit Court Judge George Greer was tested and found wanting. He had seven years to consider this case, and he got it wrong every time. I don't know Greer personally, but I know many people like him. They go to church on Sunday, and then between Monday and Friday, they lead lives with no seeming connection to what they hear preached in the pulpit, what they read in the Bible, what they claim to believe of the Christian faith. This may be the single biggest problem we have in America today, this disconnect between the spiritual lives of Christians and how they practice their faith in the world. Greer, until recently, was a member of the Calvary Baptist Church in Clearwater, Florida. He left at the urging of Pastor William Rice, who counseled him wisely. And I went on the church website and got to, this is a solid church. The pastor wrote to the judge and said, you must know that in all likelihood, it is this case which will define your career and this case that you will remember in the waning days of your life. I hope you can find a way to side with the angels and become an answer to the prayers of thousands. Uh, basically, they were getting ready to invoke Matthew 18, church discipline on this judge. And God bless them for having the guts to follow the word of God. And the pastor wrote him a letter and basically said, you know, it just might be best for everybody if you just resigned. And he did. And, of course, the pastor and the church are being deeply criticized for their lack of tolerance. 
But see, they take the Bible seriously. Uh, Pharaoh says, Rice, the pastor, has my highest regard for that decision. Too many pastors in this country don't require obedience to God as a prerequisite for church membership. They seem to believe in a kind of cheap grace that comes with just regular attendance or tithing rather than a Christian walk, loving Christ. They seem to have no minimal standards for fellowship and communion with the saints. There are very few heroes in the Terry Scheibel scandal. Her parents and siblings qualify. Terry herself qualifies. Those who brave arrest brings her to bring her cups of water qualify. In my book, so does Reverend William Rice. Do you want to know why the church doesn't have influence and impact in our increasingly secular world today? Because there are too many so-called Christians like George, Judge George Greer and not enough like Pastor William Rice. What was it that Joshua said? His famous words, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We'll follow the Lord. He's our king. We're going to live by what he says in his book. I got so much stuff here, guys. What, what, what do we take from this? Uh, let me give you one more thing, okay? J j and you know why I'm kind of doing this? Is because what's happening here is nothing new. The scripture tells us this is what happens when people depart from the word of God. What does Romans say? Professing to be wise, they became as fools. We've got, a, we've got an issue of tyranny going on in this nation. And... Can I say this to you? God established this nation. Um, the men who established it look to the word of God. I think we need to pray. I think we need to, We've got a really interesting situation in this country right now because Bill Frist is a committed Christian. Uh, Hastert is a committed Christian. Uh, DeLay is a committed Christian. He had a conversion experience and was saved from alcoholism like our president, who's a committed Christian. Jeb Bush is a committed Christian. These guys are all key players, and they're committed Christians. You know how we need to pray for them? I think we need to pray for them that they will go back to the biblical principles upon which this nation was founded. They need to go back, and I'm going to pull this in next week, this Isaiah passage, and show you this. Again, I'm up here talking, and it popped into my head. There's that passage in Isaiah where they got the three different branches of government. If you read, you know, we have this thing called the Constitution. I don't know if you're familiar with that. The Constitution of the United States, there's, there's a deal called Article 3 and in Section 1. And if you read that, what it says is that the Congress basically is over the courts. And the courts are, I got a quote in here from Alexander Hamilton. I mean, if I read you this quote, you'd run through that wall. Because he talks about the powerlessness of the judiciary. In the Federalist Papers, that was by design. They have no ability to enforce. That's a, but see, it's been subverted. So what do we need? We need to go back to the scriptures. You say, wait a minute, you're talking politics. I'm not talking about, I'm talking about implementing biblical principle to save lives. Because what's happening is, we're losing what God set up. And you know what? They can do anything. 
What's to stop a judge from saying in, t- in 20, hey, I'm going to speak in Maine this weekend, Friday night and Saturday morning. But Saturday morning before I get up, they're going to have a pastor from Canada get up and t- Canadian talk to American guys about what's happened in Canada and the freedom he's lost to preach the gospel, certain parts of the gospel, because if he preaches Romans 1 about homosexuality being sin, he'll be put in jail. And that's coming here. You see? So what do we do? Do we start, you know, get, well, I, think, I, think, I think we go to the Lord. We say, Lord, you've given us this. We'd like to preserve it. Missions all over the world are supported from this nation. You've given us freedom to spread the gospel. Would you be gracious and continue that? We'd like our children to have liberty. We'd like other people to know about Christ. But if we lose our freedoms, and how do you know they won't take your freedoms? The freedom to to assemble, the the, the freedom to worship. It's already, Terry Schiavo was denied communion by armed policemen. Guys, we need to pray. And I, can I say something else to you? When this stuff comes up in conversations, stand up for the word of God. Tell the truth. Thanks, David. Just tell the truth. Don't be afraid. This is a free country. State your opinion. Challenge these people that are saying certain things. Just challenge them. Be, be, be kind, but challenge them. Don't be afraid. Don't back off. Be salt. Be, those people need Christ. But someone needs to stand up and be a man of God in those situations. You're not arrogant. Just stand for the Lord Jesus Christ. And then let's pray. And you know what? Let's not get depressed. Because I'll tell you what, when you look at history, God allows situations like this to happen to bring about a catharsis. We're being tested as a nation. There are a lot of Christians in this nation. There are a lot of people in this nation who hate Christians. But there's a lot on the line. So we need to pray and ask that God would be gracious to us as he was to Daniel, as he was to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that we can have a witness for him in the midst of a culture that is against him and that he might prolong our freedoms so that the Great Commission could continue to go forth from this nation. Does this make any sense? I don't want you to be depressed. I want you to be realistic, but I want you to have hope. Because God is orchestrating these events. He's behind it. He's going to do something through it. Isn't that amazing this woman's still alive? Let's see what God's going to do. Okay? All right. John Knox uh, was used by God to bring about the Reformation in Scotland. And John Knox basically said, when tyrants rule, if you don't stand against them, you're in rebellion to God because they're in rebellion to God. If you submit to a tyrant, you're rebelling against God because God's above a tyrant. And your first allegiance is to him. I'm done. We'll pick it up next week. Don't get depressed in the the next six days. Watch God work, okay? He's got a remnant. He's always got his men. He's running the show. He's running history. Right? All right. Let's, Let's bow. Lord, we thank you for truth. Lord, uh, our, our hope is not in political parties. Our hope is not in men. Our hope is in you. But we also know, Lord, that throughout the ages you have used men, men that you have raised up, men that have had to put themselves on the line, men that have, been, uh, that have had to be willing to put their lives on the line. I think of Martin Luther when he walked into that council in Germany. I mean, for all he knew, he was going to be drawn and quartered. 
but you used him to bring about the Protestant Reformation, which literally changed the course of history. We'd be Roman Catholics if it wasn't for what you did through that man. And that changed the laws of nations. And it changed religious liberty and religious freedom. Lord, we don't know all that you're up to. All we know is that we grieve for this situation. We, we see great wickedness surrounding this woman. We see lies. We see a culture of death. Uh, we, we see more than likely criminal activity being covered up. We see judges that are out of control. We pray for our nation. Our hope is in you and in you alone. We ask you to save us. We ask you to work by your spirit and revive us. And Lord, do something great. Bring people to Christ who are on the fence. I pray, Lord, for some of these people that are on the other side that they might have a Damascus Road experience. Those who persecute truth and persecute Christ would come to know Christ and stand for him. We pray that in this entire situation that you would be honored. We pray for this woman that you would save her through some miraculous event. That would be our prayer. But we pray, Lord, not our will, but thine be done. You know best. We rest in your sovereignty. In Jesus' name we pray. Oh, and Lord, help us not to live one way on Sunday and another way during the week. Help us not to be like this judge. Help us to follow you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.